Welcome to the balance sheet where you rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. Mental health is no longer a behind the scenes conversation. The pandemic reshaped work-life balance and now more individuals have changed their views on mental well-being. But here's the catch. Managers are now at the forefront navigating uncharted waters. Without being mind readers or certified therapists, how do they provide support to their employees? Our guest today wrote a Harvard Business Review article on helping an employee in distress. And I believe they're also in the midst of writing a book about this. First, we have Professor Thomas Roulet, a member of the Organizational Theory faculty at Cambridge Judge Business School. He also teaches extensively on the degree programs here. So welcome, Thomas. Hello. Thank you. Also joining us is Dr. Kiran Bhatti. She is a chartered counseling psychologist currently working at Wolfson College in Cambridge, and she's also a private therapist. She has many years of experience providing therapeutic support to a range of individuals and groups across the NHS, the third sector, and education settings. So welcome, Kiran. Thank you. Hello. Toma, maybe we start with you. How have the changes brought about by hybrid work environments uh, over the last couple of years really changed employees' mental health or had an impact on it? Great question, but that's how I, you know, got back into working on mental health was the shift to remote and hybrid working. I don't know if you want to show the, the first the first slide, maybe. Hey, thank you so much. And so I, I love those two cartons from the New Yorker because they really exemplifies what we have gone through and how this has affected our mental health. So the first one is, you know, someone at home, he, he says, I can't remember, do I work at home or do I live at work? And one phenomenon we observed with remote and hybrid working is people lose this boundary between work and their personal life. And that creates mental health issues. They tend to overwork. They tend to struggle to disconnect. And when this happens, it's behind their screen. They are not in the workplace. And then that's when you, we can look at the second drawing uh, where you have this guy with, uh, working from his home. And when you work with this guy, you, know, you can see his beautiful background. He has lots of nice pictures. He looks wonderful, but the rest of his house is a mess. And that's a metaphor for what we don't see in the life of others when we work remotely or in an hybrid format. And so, you know, those trends plus, you know, uncertainty, fast-paced changes, new technology really converge to creating more mental health challenges for employees. Mm. And now you know why I have this back. I invested $20 into this backdrop from Amazon. You don't see the mess in my house. But so... Tomo, what are some of the common issues managers are now facing when they look at the people who are working for them? Well, so people might be experiencing, you know, the starting of burning out, and that might be really hard to catch because they don't interact as much in the workplace. People might have issues in their personal life that spill over in their professional life. And again, the manager cannot see it because they don't interact as much uh, as they used to be in face-to-face. And so a lot, of, uh, a lot of the cues that we would use to pick up on to get a sense that people are struggling with their mental health, we don't have 
as easily access to them. Uh, and they are still, you know, the same sort of sources of stress and anxiety with other work, with difficulties to disconnect that are uh, quite common in the context of remote working. Mm, great. Kieran, if, if I come to you, can you tell us a bit about um, how managers should strike that balance between supporting their employees' mental health when they're not really a therapist or a professional counselor like yourself? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Because I, I think that's a really important point because when we talk about managers supporting employees, I think one of the biggest fears is, oh, I, I don't know how to do that or I'm not trained how to do that, so, so what do I do? So I think really when we're thinking about managers supporting their employees, you know, the very first step is probably just acknowledging that your employees will have a mental health, they will have this well-being and actually just, you know, when they come to work, it doesn't mean that it sort of stops when they come to work, it doesn't get dropped off, you know, at the front door when they come in. So really just sort of understanding and valuing that, you know, we're all human, we all have this more holistic view of ourselves. So I think that's probably the very first thing. I think the next thing we can think about with managers supporting others, a couple of things, I suppose. One is is perhaps role modeling good behavior. So maybe managers being aware of their own mental health can sometimes be really useful. Doesn't mean that they always have to share that with their team or with their employees, but just, you know, if a manager is self-aware and understanding what their well-being is like, they're going to be much more open and receptive to other people's well-being. Um, and I suppose the next thing in terms of when we're thinking about support is probably more, you know, very simple in terms of actively listening. So checking in with your employees and listening to what they're actually saying and, and doing that in a really sort of non-judgmental, empathetic way. So it wouldn't be the expectation here wouldn't be oh, I'm listening to what they're saying and now I've got to problem solve. I've got to, you know, make sure I give them the therapy or, or sort of get them into a place where their well-being is very, very good and I'm responsible for that. It's more about being that perhaps first first time, first conversation that they've ever had with someone about their well-being maybe and, you know, really giving them the space, valuing that they've been able to share that with you and then thinking together about, okay, where can we get the most appropriate support for you right now? Is there something that we can do together at work, maybe with HR and some of the initiatives there? Or would it be, okay, maybe we need to talk to your GP, or maybe I can encourage you to reach out to this professional service. So yeah, so I'd, I'd say in a nutshell, it's about managers being aware of themselves and perhaps also taking the pressure off themselves not to not to have to fix and problem solve. Mm. And to our viewers, if you have any questions, please put them in the chat or comments. But Kiran, on this point about managers being quite proactive and, and understanding and being empathetic about their employees' mental health, what do you say to those managers who take the approach that, well, mental health, so that's a health issue, you should just go straight to a GP, get a medical note. You don't have to talk. Don't talk to me about it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very common response, probably, because, as I said, it's it's not sort of something we expect when we're at work. And most of the time when people go to work, they're wanting to present their best selves, their most capable professional selves. And mental distress doesn't always go hand in hand with that. So I think it can be quite common for managers to to have that response, to think actually this isn't for here. 
and I would say you know that that's understandable but it still needs to be addressed and it's you know a lot more sorry in now what's sort of happening is a lot more people are bringing their whole selves to work be that you know their mental health experience their sexuality their race their culture and it's really just about valuing that person so I would say you know very understandable that people might might have that response but it still needs to be addressed because actually what will happen is even if it's not a work-related issue that has caused the mental health difficulty or the well poor well-being it will start to have an impact on work and it will very soon become perhaps a manager's problem so to speak in the sense that you know maybe they won't be able to engage with work the way they want to or maybe they might be less productive it might start to have an impact on other team members so it really does need to be addressed but as i said it doesn't have to be addressed in the way that managers then provide the therapy it could just be okay you've gone you've got a sick note that's great are you doing everything you need to to keep yourself well is there anything that we or the organization can do mm. And Toma, anything you want to add to what Kieran mentioned? No, I think, you know, we, we, I completely understand managers who are worried that this is not their role, that maybe they are, you know, stepping away from their boundaries, that they, you know, they are not playing their role of manager, they are playing another role that is not appropriate. But the truth is that I think in the current context, with mental health being, you know, a challenge experienced by your employees, Part of good leadership, part of being a good manager is this ability to listen and to understand what people are going through. And, you know, to have this disability to talk about it and to listen uh, to people who are uh, struggling with their mental health. Is, yeah, I, we really believe it's going to be really an important leadership and management skills in the future. Not for, the, for managers to become therapists, but for managers to develop a sensitivity and an understanding of those issues. Great. And Laura has on LinkedIn has a comment about how she agrees with what you've said and the importance of acknowledging the individual. The environment is changing, work versus what's going on at home. So thank you very much, Laura, for that. Kieran and Toma, in your article, you wrote about the concept of mental health first aid. Can you tell us what is that? Kieran, I let you start. Yeah, I'll start and then you can jump in. So I suppose really it's it's very similar to perhaps what we would think of as first aid for physical health in the sense that if you see someone in the street who has fallen over, you will be, you know, if, and we think of a first aid of responding, it's very much thinking, okay, you've fallen over, how can I help you in the immediate? Do, what help do you need? Do we call an ambulance? Do you need a lift to A&E? So it's very much that very immediate support. But again, you wouldn't be then expected to, you know, do the x-ray yourself and treat them and do the physio afterwards. So when we're thinking about mental health first aid, it's really about perhaps acknowledging when someone is in distress and maybe having that first initial conversation and engaging with that person. And like I said, it might be the first time this person has ever had a conversation about their well-being, about their mental health before. And it wouldn't be that we then go on and treat the person, but it would be, okay, where can we get you? Uh, where can we get the right support for you? And I think that's why when we're thinking about mental health first aid in the workplace, it is perhaps, you know, understanding and recognising, oh, someone 
might not be behaving the way they're usually behaving or someone seems like they've been maybe a little bit more withdrawn and we can use sort of a mental health first aid kit in a way to to check in with that person and just sort of you know even if it's just light touch to see what might be going on with them and do they need support or maybe they just need a what you know a one-off conversation and they'll feel better so that's sort of the the idea and the concept yes and i could add that so the way we thought about mental health first aid is we put this under a broader umbrella of uh, what karen and i call well-being intelligence mm -hmm. so if you want to show you we have a slide about this and, you know, very much the idea that, and it's kind of a counterpart to the concept of emotional intelligence. We wrote about this in another article than the one you mentioned, but basically it's the idea that people need to start with the self. They need to understand what are the source of their stress, their anxiety, how do they react to different inputs at work? How can they change their own practices to feel better at work? And on the basis of this knowledge, using this knowledge to help others, to help members of your team, and then changing the organization more broadly, changing the culture, changing the practices that are you know, common in your organization that might be affecting uh, mental health. So mental, mental health first aid, it's really what is the first step I can take when I observe and I see someone struggling with their mental health. But we see that as you know, something that is sort of a muscle that we develop also by taking care of ourselves, by thinking about what can we do for ourselves to improve our mental health and what are the drivers of our mental health. Great, and I think we've got a couple of questions. So first of all, I think if we take Laura's question, which is how do you spot the signs of mental distress? Because many, let's say managers, will, may not be able to spot these signs of disconnection? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually, because you're right, we might not always spot that or we don't know what to look out for. I would say, and I suppose this is where sometimes it's difficult with hybrid working, but one of the things I would say is, first of all, if, if someone's not telling us, you know, we're not mind readers, we're not going to be able to know. Um, so sometimes it can be useful to think about or notice uh, someone's behaviour. So you know, for example, if we have a colleague that, you know, is usually, you know, when they're feeling good, you know, they they have lunch with other people, they check in with people, they come in, they say good morning, you know, that that's sort of indicating, okay, you know, they must, they, they're probably feeling well, but if there is a change from a normal behaviour, so they're suddenly sort of withdrawing, or they're sort of turning down lunch invitations, or they just sort of come into the office, don't really make eye contact, you know that might indicate that something's not not sort of well with them or they might be sort of in distress so i'd say you know as we're not mind readers it might be looking for those external signs and it might also be about just sort of being aware of potential almost like risk factors for mental distress that might happen in the workplace so if there are you know perhaps if there's been high turnover or if there's been a period of intense stress at work lots and lots of deadlines you know, or, or sort of, you know, even things when we're thinking about job insecurity, you can we can sort of understand and imagine that there might be more increased anxiety. So perhaps also being aware of the working environment that we have. And so sort of going back to the remote working, you know, if if we've been remote working for a long period of time, 
we can imagine that people are starting to maybe feel isolated and that might be a sign to sort of check in with people. And I guess those conversations that managers will be having with their employees when they spot these first signs, in a way, it's the same kind of empathetic conversation to find out their level of engagement with the company itself, is an organization itself. It may not necessarily have to be a mental health discussion from the very beginning. Is that right? Yeah. I Sorry, yeah, I think it can be, you know, early stages of disengagement or someone being less excited about about work. You know, you can feel those those changes and, and they might they might not be a mental health issue, but they might lead to a mental health issue. And we know, for example, that, you know, there is research showing that as it's leaving a firm or burnout, you know, you can already detect that by looking at how people interact with others in the organization, you know, the structure of their network in their organization, if you see it shrinking, you can, uh, you know, it's a sign that there is something that is going wrong and that they might be disengaging and there might be a mental health issue behind it. Mm. And if we go back to your slide and maybe Lucilian's question, she's watching this from Brazil. Do you consider that treating mental health in companies, there's a cultural barrier to that? Yeah, I think that's a very important point is that there is still a stigma around mental health, which is the whole reason, you know, I started uh, studying uh, mental health is that for a long time, people would not want to talk about their mental health issue. First, first cultural problem is that if people don't talk about it, it's really hard to understand it and to address it. It might be that the culture of the organization or the culture of the country is that people are very guarded in at work. They don't talk about their feelings or who they are or their identity. And that can prevent from addressing, from addressing mental health. But to give you another example, there can be also culture of an industry or specific organization that leads to mental health issue. I used to be working as an investment banker. One of the norm was that junior people would need to stay at work until 3 a.m. for no reasons. That's not very good for your mental health and for your sleep patterns the two being strongly connected. And that's, you know, that's a cultural norm within your organization, within the industry that negatively affects mental health. And for a lot of organizations, and that's why I had this broader circle on that, on that diagram, is that once you have identified the challenges at the individual and team level, you can get a sense of what are the cultural issues within your organization. What are the norms, the values, the practices that are at odds with having a good mental health culture. Mm. And I think what you mentioned, you know, about being the, the cultural barriers when you're talking self, team, organization, um, it leads on to a question I have, which is how open should employees be about their mental health struggles? For example, should they post about it on LinkedIn? Uh, I think that's a very, very important question. And... I think in many cases right now, it is something that can be useful because if you have people at the top, people who are successful, who work super hard, and you see that external, you know, glossy career view, work experience, you don't necessarily see that there might be struggles. And if people are open about talking about their struggle, then they normalize uh, mental health issues. 
people get a sense that it's not they are not isolated with their own mental health issues because they see others sharing their mental health issues. So in many organizations and contexts, uh, talking about our mental health issues, it can be quite useful into changing the culture, normalizing uh, mental health problems. Obviously, you don't want something that is only about, you know, uh, some, someone who only talks about themselves and it's very self-centered, but somewhat, sometimes sharing those stories actually are the first step to a role modeling uh, change. Kieran, do you want to No, I, I would agree. And I think also it can be also like a really useful source of support. You know, like you say, if somebody has shared perhaps their experience with their own mental health at work, you know, it does, it, it almost gives permission for other people to do the same. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, that diagram is sort of focused on, on workplace well-being as well is that typically if somebody is struggling at work, you, you know, it, it's very common that some of those stresses that they're facing are going to be work-related. So people in their team are also going to be feeling a similar way. And if one person sort of verbalizes that and shares that, you know, other people can also feel that they can say that they might be struggling with the same things as well and it also just means that people are sort of less alone in what they're dealing with and that in itself can be really really beneficial for good well-being mm. on that point there's a comment or uh, here from Viotati, i think and Tatia says showing one's vulnerability is the first step towards employees and creating a safe environment but sometimes it's hard to do that do you, do you think that it is, how, how do you think is the best way to show vulnerability? I would sort of recommend, you know, if we've got a manager that is able to role model that, I think that can be really useful, but it doesn't always have to be the role model, uh, the manager who role models. I think, you know, even setting up at work, you know, things like non-work sharing. So you having a space within a team meeting where, you know, maybe the, the first five minutes or the, the last five minutes of the meeting, we all sort of talk about something that's not, mm. nothing to do with work, sort of giving people permission to bring other parts of themselves to work that might be, you know, a little bit more personal to them. It might start to show a little bit more vulnerability and show that you're sort of investing in people, not just as them as a worker, but them as a person can be quite useful. Um, so I think it, it does start to become easier when people are given sort of the spaces and the permission to talk about, you know, either mental health distress or anything sort of more personal that's not completely work orientated. Um, but it is, it is difficult. And I think that's when we think about things like having a psychologically safe environment at work, which is basically having an environment where you feel comfortable and able to share your thoughts, your ideas, uh, your your own feelings, your 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 experiences with people without that fear of judgment um, and criticism, and so, so that can be a really you know having a good sort of psychologically safe team can make things a little bit easier. And of course, the manager can be really really instrumental in building that team, you know, in building that sort of team cohesion, but that sort of trusting relationship between people. And Toma, maybe for you, do you have any advice in terms of how to come out and show that vulnerability? Maybe if you were in an industry like you mentioned in investment banking, but I'm thinking also industries that are very 
dare I say, male dominated. So, for example, professional sports, where you just don't come out to say that you're suffering from mental health because you, you, you look weak. Yeah, exactly. You are putting the, exactly the finger on it, Conrad. Is that uh, we know, uh, and there is research on authenticity in leadership that shows that people are concerned to show vulnerability because on the shorter run, they are afraid that it might negatively affect the way they are perceived as leaders, as managers, and so on. So they take a risk by being vulnerable, and a lot of people just don't want to take that risk. But what the research suggests when, we, when it comes to authenticity and vulnerability is that if you make that effort to be vulnerable, to show that you are also yourself exposed to stress, to anxiety, people can relate to that because very often they are experiencing the same sources of stress, the same sources of anxiety. So how to show vulnerability? I think it's about, you know, it's quite situational. It's about seizing the right situations the right context to say, you know, I am stressed because of X, Y, Z in that specific context. And I'm sharing it with you, my employee, my colleague, my partner uh, at work. And I'm showing you that I'm in the same boat as you, that we are both rowing in the same direction, in the same boat. And that if I feel like that, it's normal that you or others might feel similar or might feel slightly differently, but also those mental health struggles and those mental health challenges, maybe for different reasons, but with the same experience of stress and anxiety in the workplace. So I think it's about finding commonalities and finding the right situation, the right context in which you can share those elements. And if you see top people, you know, CEOs, the way they, 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 they do it in their communication, very often it's, you know, when there is an issue that the organization is facing, then they will say that opportunity to say, you know, I am also feeling the same as you. I'm in the same boat. I'm stressed. I'm anxious about the future. I'm anxious about this merger, this acquisition, this new technology coming up. Hmm. And maybe that's a good point to, to go to Joy's um, question, which is how it's all good what you mentioned in theory, Thomas, but how do we as individuals protect ourselves against a backlash when uh, it turns out that the organization actually just pays lip service to mental health challenges. Yeah, I think that's very common. You have a lot of organizations that pretend that that they are working on mental health issues and then actually, as, as Joy is saying, it's, it's lip service. So it's not only the role of managers, employees to, to change an organization, and it can be very difficult for individuals to change an organization, but... Uh, you know, we also need to believe in the power of bottom-up change. People, you know, who experience mental health issues at, on the, at the field level, uh, they are also those drivers of change because they know and they see what is going on and what is needed from the organization. It's, it's going to be on them to go to their HR, to go to their top managers and to say, look, we have a core issue here. We have a mental health problem because of X, Y, Z, because of overwork, because of lack of social connections. And if you as an organization, as uh, an organizational leader, if you don't do anything about it, you are taking the risk of affecting the performance down the line, of losing employees, of struggling to attract people. So it's also about the employees, you know, raising the alarm bell and saying, you know, if you don't change, if we don't start changing the culture, we are going straight into the wall. Uh, and those kind of arguments, organizations are starting to be a lot more receptive to it. 
and they are saying that it's not only a question of uh, uh, individual people dealing with their mental health, it's a combination of people understanding their mental health, working with their team to improve it, and then changing organizational practices, organizational provision, having a strategy for your well-being and for the well-being of your employees. And Kieran, I think maybe if you could take this and I'll reframe it. So Sudi posted about how Sudi sometimes feels alone due to remote working. And in this situation, you know, is it good to approach HR? I think Laura has posted some of her thoughts about this in the comments. But my question to you based on this is, is it is HR the right place to go? And does HR show itself as the right place to go for uh, employees when they have mental health challenges? That's a really good point, because I think it, it's, in my experience, it's been quite varied. So I can understand why there might be some sort of apprehension or sort of uh, reluctance to go to HR. But, you know, HR can be really useful, I think, especially in terms of maybe not that initial conversation. I think, you know, that can be quite varied. That might be an initial conversation you have about this, it, it could be with your direct line manager, it could even be with, you know, your colleagues and peers at work. But HR can be really useful in terms of support and actually perhaps making some of the changes either to like things like job design or, you know, frequency of remote working or, or sort of getting you connected with other colleagues, but also things in terms of, you know, if, if you did want to have some therapy support, you know, a lot of HRs now sort of in a way, sometimes almost gatekeep things like staff counselling services, or they will have an understanding of what sort of benefits people have with their health insurance if they have the right to access sort of therapeutic support externally to the organisation as well. I think HR can work really well with managers, with individuals, with the organisation in, in sort of being part of that organisational change with, with well-being and making well-being sort of something that comes on the agenda at work. But I, I understand that sometimes, you know, it is a bit of a work in progress, but I, I would say it also perhaps depends on the individual in terms of what relationship they might have with their line manager. Some people might feel more comfortable talking to HR because it's slightly removed from their direct line manager. They might not be ready to have those conversations with somebody they work very closely with, and they might just sort of want to flag it up with somebody who is in the organisation, but they're not going to have to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And maybe, Toma, you can take this question, which is from LinkedIn. Someone has been trying to make the benefits and value of workforce mental health measurable and visible to employees and top management. What's your advice? That's, that's a tough question. Obviously, a lot of organizations now are trying to better capture mental health. And so they use, for example, Pearl surveys, so small three-question surveys that you ask your people on a regular basis or that they have to take, for example, after a meeting or after some kind of online interaction. So you can potentially measure that. I think one of the other important things is to be able to measure all the sort of wellness or well-being programs or well-being trainings that you have to see whether they are effective or not. And that's quite easy. It's about measuring how people feel before and how they feel afterwards or a month or couple of months afterwards. So survey tools here yeah, are, are quite, quite useful. But sometimes you have paradox because people believe, you know, 
If I measure how many people are using the counseling services of my organization or the access to apps like Calm or Headspace in my organization, and if it's going up, it means people are experiencing more mental health issues. So I'm not doing well. Actually, it might be the contrary. It might be that people are more comfortable seeking help, seeking support from apps and from the different services that are made available in the organization. And that's actually it's a positive. So you really need to be careful about what you want to measure what you want to capture and how you want to, to capture it. Uh, but obviously, you, you can capture the mental health itself. The impact of mental health on performance is not, a, is not a big mystery. There is like a lot of research on the link between mental health and performance at the individual level and at the organizational level. As soon as you're going to have, for example, people interacting with customers, people you know on, on a factory line, their mental health will affect Safety will affect customer, uh, customer satisfaction, will affect, you know, people's uh, sense of growth. Like if you manage others, mm. if you yourself are not great with, you know, you're struggling with your mental health, other people working for you will also have more difficulty with their autonomy, with their sense of growth and competence. Mm. But on this point, I see some stats that show the global corporate wellness market, almost $50 billion U.S. dollars in 2022. Yet, we seem to see so much higher levels of mental health issues in the workplace. So does this mean that these corporate wellness programs are just not effective? Well, the research indeed, you know, shows pretty mixed results that corporate wellness programs, they are not always effective. But there is one huge paradox, which explains partly why this is happening, is that if you are an organization that is squeezed, where people are feeling squeezed, they're feeling stressed, they are overworked, they're not, they're not going to have time to do the corporate wellness program. They're not going to have time to take a training, to take some time off to uh, do a meditation session or yoga session or something that will improve their, their, their well-being. So the, the, the problem is creating engagement with corporate wellness program. I mean, it's, it's twofold. First, you need to create engagement with corporate wellness program. So you need to give people a sense that by doing this program, they're actually going to benefit from it, that they're not going to just take time out of their busy day, that down the line, it will be useful. So you need a wellness program that is tailored to people's uh, mental health struggles and where they are coming from. So most corporate wellness programs, they are not tailored to the organization. They are not tailored to the experience of their employees. And the, the, second, uh, the second element is you really need to adapt the content so that people don't only see and understand what is mental health, but they develop skills for mental health. They develop ways to approach the issues that they are facing, tips, advices, methods that really help them, you know, break cycles of, of stress, break, you know, difficult habits that really uh, have an impact on their mental health. I want to go to this idea of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT techniques that both of you write about in uh, your article. Can you tell us a bit about what is CBT? Sure. So CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's a psychological therapy that's it's a, got a very good evidence base for things like anxiety and depression, which, as we know, are very, very common in working aged adults. 
And basically what it does is it looks at our thinking and it looks at our behaviour and how that can affect our mood. So what we've got on the screen here is what we call a hot cross bun model. And really what this does is it provides a sort of snapshot of someone's experience. So the emotion, uh, sorry, the example we've got here is about someone feeling depressed. So what it does in CBT, we connect sort of our mood state. So feeling low and depressed with our thinking and our cognitive state. So our thoughts. So if someone's feeling low and depressed, they might have thoughts of, oh, I'm no good at my job. I don't belong here. People are going to find me out if they've got a bit of imposter syndrome going on there. But it also connects to, you know, our physiological state. So a lot of the time when we're experiencing mental health distress, it will come out in the body. So people might sort of feel really lethargic. You know, they might wake up tired, even if they've slept eight hours. They might feel really tense and, you know, their shoulders shoot up to their ears when they're stressed out. And it then links to our behavioural state, so our actions as well. So in this example, you know, if we have somebody who's feeling a bit depressed, either because of work or personal life, you know, they might sort of feel that in their body, they might feel more tired, they might have thoughts about, you know, not feeling very good about themselves. And as a result, their behaviour, they might avoid going into work, they might withdraw from colleagues. And in CBT, when we map this out, we see one that actually all of these sections are connected but also they all feed into each other. So if I, you know, if, if someone's avoiding going into work, that's going to increase perhaps the feelings of I don't belong here, which is then going to make them feel more depressed or more low. So we talk about CBT, I suppose, because one, because it's got a really good evidence base, but also it's, you don't always need to be sort of sat in a therapy room with a psychologist to, to sort of incorporate some of these tools and techniques into everyday life. And what, why we sort of brought it up here is because actually this snapshot, these, this sort of uh, hot cross bun, bun model is something that anybody can do. You know, you can do it as a manager with one of your employees. You can do it on yourself. As a manager, you can also do it for yourself. And it can be a really good way of just getting a bit more awareness about what your current experience is. You know, you ask yourself questions. How am I feeling? How is my body feeling? What are my thoughts at the moment? You know, what what's my behavior showing me? And it can be a really good tool to build that that awareness and that sort of first circle of well-being that we showed that idea of building, building what is going on for me. And maybe other people are feeling the same way. And you talk about breaking this maintenance cycle. What is that? Yeah, so basically a maintenance cycle is really anything that sort of prolongs or sort of maintains our current distress. So in this example, we've got somebody who is basically getting really, really worried because they need to send their boss an email. Last time they sent their boss an email, there was a couple of spelling mistakes and, and the boss sort of picked them up. So you know, this left them feeling, you know, oh gosh, they must have a really poor opinion of me or, oh, they must think I'm really careless. So basically to avoid feeling like that, they've sort of engaged in what we call a safety behavior, which is I'm going to check all of my emails. You know, I'm going to double, triple check them. I'm going to put them into Grammarly. I'm going to, you know, that anything I can to make sure my emails are perfect. And it shows me as someone who's very competent. 
or I'm going to just only email my boss only when I really, really need to, you know, even if I need help, I'm going to try every other avenue before I ask for help. So we call this a maintenance cycle because actually what happens is by engaging in that safety behavior of double, triple checking an email, what we're doing, we're actually maintaining that anxiety because the fear and the stress are still there in the short term double checking our emails is going to give us a bit of relief and we feel reassured nope that was perfect but actually in the long term the worry is still there because we haven't sort of tested out that oh actually I can send an email without double checking it and it's okay so we sort of brought up maintenance cycles again to build that awareness but also once we have that awareness we're in a much better position to maybe make some changes so it might be you know thinking oh what what happens if I don't check my emails or I don't stick them in Grammarly first you know is is it as scary as I think it is yeah and I, I like Kieran what that you mentioned how things in the workplace could affect your mental health and this whole cycle because if we get this comment from someone on LinkedIn which is how about conflict between two employees and the question is framed as both employees going through a tough time but Actually, I think my own observation, sometimes it's actually organizational conflicts, personal conflicts in the workplace that actually contribute to or create mental health issues. So how does a manager handle this, this kind of issues? Yeah, I, I, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> you, you jump in afterwards. But basically, I, I think as a manager, I would be thinking about, you know, being aware of what's the actual work environment at the moment and being aware of what's going on for my team especially when there's perhaps conflict between two people in a team and is the manager aware of that actually and is that something that is spoken about are other colleagues aware of that and, and sort of almost how has that information come about that would be my my first response is thinking about how aware is is the manager about you know of this conflict and then it might be thinking about, do we sit down and have a conversation about it? those those well-being conversations, you know, where we're both empathetic, you know, we're not, we're not judging anybody, we're not blaming anybody. And in those situations, it might be that people bring in HR in those situations. But Tom, I'll let you. No, in. I think the boundary between work and life can be very porous. So you, if you have a, you know, a struggle in your personal life, you might, you know, take it into your professional life. And inversely, if you have a conflict, there is research showing that if you had a conflict during a day, your way to drive back home uh, and to commute back home, you, are, you take more risk. You know? so, so there is really a porous boundary. And it's important for people to realize that because sometimes they will be very upset about the behavior of someone else in the workplace. But actually, it's something external to the workplace that is triggering that behavior. So in the case that is mentioned here, you know, we have two people who are facing a tough time, might be a tough time in their personal life on both sides. They are taking it to work, but actually they have this challenge in common. So they might have more in common than, than what they think. And so it's about mm. themselves talking about their vulnerability to be able to solve that conflict by both addressing the source of their stress from their personal life and the source of their stress in their professional life. Well, thank you so much, Thomas and... Um, Kieran for joining us and giving us such a wonderful insight into how we can we as managers can help uh, our employees handle the mental health issues that they struggle with but also advice about 
how we as managers need to look after ourselves. So thank you so much. If you like the show, please repost it on your social networks. And the balance sheet will be back on the 8th of February at a slightly later time, uh, at 6.05 p.m. UK time. We will have Francois Candelon, Managing Director of BCG's Paris office. And he will tell us how top leaders are approaching AI in business. So till then, stay well, and we'll see you next time.